When we finally started to make that trip to Texas, leaving the Carolinas, you can't help but notice as you're driving through the Bible Belt things that you've probably noticed before. How people have used their time and their money, their billboards and their posters, and sometimes even their land. Is there a clicker up here? Is this it? Nope, not that one. That one. Sometimes even their land. To put the name of God and the fact that his son Jesus saves into the minds and lives of everyday passerbys. You'll see this often, all proclaiming in some way that our God lives and that his son saved us. Unfortunately, there's another side to that, though. Unfortunately, there is another side, as far too many people also view the Bible as outdated and irrelevant. And so they will go so far as to publicly mock the historicity of the text and to talk about how the biblical narrative is fake, it's false news. They mock God. Signs that make some reference that say something like, in the beginning man created God. There's probably no God, now stop worrying and just enjoy life. Or maybe you've seen something like this around Christmas. You know it's a myth. This season, celebrate reason. That's just the kind of mentality that exists in this world today. And we're not going to talk about evidences this morning. That's not really our purpose. I'm sure Ricky's doing a fine job in his own class. No, this morning we're going to lay a foundation. A foundation for answering a simple question, but a universal one. One that must be answered by everyone. What am I going to do with Jesus? Because here this morning, we may be thought of as gullible fanatics. People who cannot think for themselves. People who cannot accept anything but what they hear that will make them feel good about what is to come. But brethren, regardless of what the world thinks we are, we cannot miss the importance of the historical nature of the faith that we profess. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 2 that our salvation depends upon the gospel message. And that gospel message is that Jesus died for our sins. That he was buried and raised on the third day according to scripture and that he appeared. And there is evidence and a historical reality that is behind our faith and our salvation. And Luke points to this in Luke chapter 1 when he talks about those things that he investigated carefully. He said that he did that so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. And so this question, what am I going to do with Jesus? That question has to be answered. It has to be answered even for those who completely deny the Bible. The atheist, the Muslim, the Taoist, the Buddhist, every one of them still has to answer this question, what am I going to do with him? And I want to discuss that with you this morning. I want to begin this morning in Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to set the stage for this question and how important it is for each one of us. We all know the story well. Jesus is on trial. He's going before Pilate. Pilate is bringing him before the people. And he asks this question in verse 17. 
Whom do you want me to release for you? And you'll recall this story. He brings Barabbas. This was a custom of the day. It wasn't something unusual. Often they would bring uh, prisoners uh, before the people, and they would release one of them as the people would wish. And so it seems on this occasion that Pilate thought Jesus was the obvious answer for release. After all, he had done nothing wrong. But instead, they asked for Barabbas. They asked for the insurrectionist. They asked for the murderer. He is their choice. So Pilate presents Jesus and Barabbas before the people, and they say, release Barabbas in verse 22. And then Pilate responds with this question. He says, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Brethren, we aren't going to answer that question right now. But the important thing is, is that you see the question. That you recognize this question. What are we going to do with him? Back in chapter 16, Matthew 16, we have the account of Peter making the great confession. And Jesus approaches the very thing we're talking about with this question in verse 13. It says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And brethren, I want you to realize this morning, there's a very personal aspect to this question. We all know what a lot of people say about Jesus. There are a lot of people who believe all kinds of things about Jesus. What I want us to do this morning is do some introspection. What is your answer to this? Not does what everyone else think. Not what does Ricky and Jordan tell me each week about Jesus and who He is. Not who does Jesse say that Jesus is, or who do the elders teach that Jesus is. And certainly not what does the world say about Jesus. We all know what they think. What is your answer? What do you say about Jesus? What do you say regarding who He is? Regarding His deity? Regarding His status as the Son of God? And what are you going to do with Him? Of course, there are a number of absolutely incredible claims about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the Savior. When He was born into this world, He would be called Jesus because He would save the people from their sins. He is the only way to God. John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. He is in fact God manifest in the flesh. John 1.1 tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then in chapter 14 of the, or in verse 14 of the same chapter, John chapter 1. 
It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Attributed to Him are all kinds of signs and miracles to demonstrate that He is the Son of God. John chapter 20, verses 30-31, through 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And of course, the proof of all of this is in the resurrection claims. And so incredible is all of that, that even in Matthew 16, when Peter makes this great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus prays him, but then he turns around. He turns around and he says to him that he must go to Jerusalem now. That he's going to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And he's going to be killed. And on the third day, he's going to be raised. And you know what Peter says? Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, Lord. That can't happen to you. Not you. You see, it's difficult to accept that the Son of the living God could be put to death. So difficult, in fact, that Peter completely misses Jesus' last line. That he is going to die and then be raised on the third day. There are a lot of questions and debates that people have about the resurrection. Some people say, you know, it's just exaggerated claims. Just myths and legends. Or maybe he's just deliberately lied about all of this. Some even think he was delusional. Or maybe that his disciples were delusional. I know a man that was once a good, godly, faithful follower of Jesus Christ, and now he believes that the disciples of Jesus were just confused about what they saw. Brethren, when you put the evidence together, what you're left with is the claim that the resurrection finally makes. And that is that Jesus is Lord. Rebecca and I have been watching The Hobbit. And if you know about the author, Tolkien, you know he had a good friend. C.S. Lewis also wrote some pretty famous books, The Chronicles of Narnia. But he wrote another book called Mere Christianity, and he deals with this very question. I really like what he says here. He wrote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was, was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. When you get to the root of things, you are left with two answers. Either Jesus is a complete fool and a delusional myth, or you're left with He is 
Lord. And the problem is that we all have kinds, we have all kinds of people out there who will say, I believe in Jesus. I believe he was a good man, and I believe he did a lot of very good things, but they don't want to confess him. They aren't ready to do that. But here's the thing. There comes a point where that decision has to be made. The choice has to be made. Sin is still in this world, and we still need a solution to it. And Jesus is that solution. With all the attempts that people have made over the years to discredit and burn and get rid of it, the Bible, the Word of God, stands just as strong as it has ever today. And it gives us the solution to the problem. But we're still left with the burning question, what am I going to do with him? Well, back in Matthew chapter 27, verses 15 through 26, and again, when the governor Pilate goes to release for the people, anyone that they wanted, they asked for Barabbas, and he says, what shall I do with Jesus? And Pilate's answer to his own predicament is simple. It's wrong, but it's simple. He says, well, I'm just going to wash my hands of this guy. And that's really another way of saying exactly what his wife wanted him to say. You remember in verse 19, she says, hey, you need to get away from this. You need to get far away from this. Don't have anything to do with this righteous man. And it's, it's interesting and fascinating, I think, that she recognized that there was something righteous about Jesus. But she goes on to tell Pilate, I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. And so finally, Pilate makes his decision. And in verse 24, it says that Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing. But rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. He says, I'm just going to wash my hands of Jesus. And how many people have we known in our lives that have done exactly that? Brothers and sisters, any of these answers that we're looking at this morning, even once somebody has become a disciple, they can down the road eventually decide, I don't want this anymore. I don't want to have this anymore. I don't want to do this. And they reject Jesus, the person that they once bowed down to, their king. They reject him and they just say, I'm going to wash my hands of him. People have made that choice and they'll say, you know, I, I just want to treat it like he's never come into my life. I want, to, I want this time to just go away and pretend like it didn't happen. Let me tell you something. There's no washing your hands of Jesus. You either decide he's telling the truth and you submit yourself to his lordship, or you take the consequences of denying who he is. And those are the only two options. Pilate didn't rid himself of guilt that day. He might have thought he did. But he did not rid himself of guilt that day by washing his hands. We may fool ourselves to thinking, you know, I'll just wash my hands of Jesus thinking I had nothing to do with it, and therefore I won't have to answer for it. But no, we will have to answer for it, just as Pilate did. There's so many examples in the text of those who gave an answer to our question. If you back up to Matthew 26, 
We know that, again, sometimes a person can start out being a disciple and yet end up on the wrong side of the fence, end up going their own way and doing some horrible things. And that's what we have here in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I, get, if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So what did Judas say? Judas said, I'll just betray him. I'll just do things my way. I'll betray him. And this is one of the saddest accounts in Scripture, isn't it? Because if anyone knew what Jesus was all about, it was Judas. Judas had followed him for years. Judas had heard his teachings. Judas had been there in the most intimate settings where Jesus was trying to teach his disciples and trying to show them the right way. Judas was a companion and he was a friend. But during this time that we call the Last Supper, in John 13, Jesus knows what his friend is going to do with him and he says, what you've come to do, you do quickly. Judas was there all the time. And yet, in the end, his decision is, I will betray my Jesus. That's what I'm going to do with him. And he doesn't just tell them where he is and what he looks like. In John 18, he does it with a kiss. Imagine how hurtful this had, had to have been for Jesus. Betrayal with a kiss. That which was supposed to represent friendship. That which represents loyalty. That which represents love. Psalm chapter 2 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. That which represents submission. It represents discipleship. And this kiss and all that it represents on this day becomes the sign of betrayal. And while we tend to think that it is particularly egregious for Judas to do this, we have to ask ourselves, do we ever find ourselves betraying Jesus? While maybe on the one hand kissing Him, indicating a sense of desire to follow Him and worship Him, and on the other hand selling Him out to the world. Am I that person? Do I do that? The crowd answered. Their answers let him be crucified. If you look over in Luke chapter 23, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, two of those charges were outright lies. Yes, he did call himself the Christ, and, and Christ is a king. Christ means anointed one, and so if you're calling yourself the Christ, you're indeed calling yourself king. Jesus did do that. But then Pilate asked him, you are, the, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. 
And what Luke doesn't tell us, John does. In John chapter 18, Jesus engages Pilate right there. Pilate takes him aside and, and, and says, you know, is this true? Is the charge true? Are you a king? And Jesus says, well, you've, you've, you've said so yourself. But it's not the kind of king you're thinking of. Over in John 18 and verse 36, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And so what's, that's what Pilate would then come out and say, you know, I don't find anything wrong with what he's saying here. I don't find any guilt in this man. That same Pilate that says, I'll wash my hands of him. I'll wash my hands of him. I find no guilt in him, but I'll wash my hands of him. He will allow the injustice to occur even though he knows full well that Jesus is innocent. And Pilate says, I find no guilt, but in Luke 23 and verse 5, it says, but they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. What are they trying to do? What is their ultimate goal? Their ultimate goal is to just silence him. We want him crucified. We don't want him to talk anymore. We don't want to hear from him. Matthew chapter 27, as Pilate's insisting with this question, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all say, let him be crucified. They're not interested in whether or not just Jesus is innocent. They're not interested in justice. They're not interested in whether or not Jesus is actually guilty of anything. They're interested in getting rid of him because he challenges their power structure. He challenges their way of life because he challenges them personally to change their lives and to follow him and to truly submit to God, and they don't want to do that. And brethren, when, we, when people reach the point where they don't want to follow God, when they just want to do what pleases them, where they don't want to submit every single time, they will find a way to accuse Jesus. Think about this world again. What does this world think about Jesus? What does this world say about Jesus? And then ask yourself, why would they be saying these things? Why say, let him be crucified? Again, they think by doing this that they're just getting rid of him. So the contrast here is Pilate saying, I'll wash my hands, I'll not be guilty of this man's blood, and the Jews are saying, his blood be on us and on our children. And these crazy people are willing to even make their children guilty of it. And they think Jesus is the lunatic. They're willing to make their children guilty of the blood of Christ just to get rid of him. Well, we think this mob is pretty bad, right? We think what's going on here is pretty bad. But I want to come back to one of his disciples again. In Matthew 26, Peter's sitting in a courtyard. He's sitting in a courtyard, and a young servant girl, she comes before him. And she says, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. And Peter, in this crisis, is afraid. He sees his Jesus going through the things that he's going through, being tortured. He's watching all of this happen. And self-preservation kicks in, doesn't it? And so as he's accused of this, he simply comes back and he looks at her and he looks at the people around and he says, I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you mean. In verse 71, it says, when he went out into the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, 
He denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man. I don't know who he is. That's Peter's answer to the question. What shall I do with Jesus on this occasion? What am I going to do? He says, I will deny him. And we understand Peter will change his answer later. In fact, he's changed it many times already, hasn't he? How many times has Jesus changed his mind about who Jesus is up to this point? It shouldn't surprise us that he's changed it again. In fact, he changed it the first time when he followed him. Then he questions, and then he makes that great confession that would lead us to believe, you know, Peter's locked in here. But here in this moment, when he had an opportunity to take a stand, he denies Jesus. He didn't do it just once, he did it three times, even to the point of cursing and swearing. Peter basically calls down curses upon himself, taking a vow, taking an oath that I do not know anything about this man. And again, kind of like Judas and Peter, we kind of find ourselves in similar situations. We claim to be disciples. We want to follow Jesus. We want to do what he would have us to do. We want to get close. You know, Peter followed at a distance coming into the courtyard. He's following this whole thing all along, and, and he's watching the trials, and, and, and he doesn't want to leave, but when his feet are held to the fire right here, on this occasion, his answer to the question is, I'll just deny him. I'll just say that I don't know him. This is the same Peter who said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Matthew 16, 16. He is the same Peter that said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know you, that you are the Holy One of God. In John chapter 6. And if that same person can turn around and say, I can deny Him, do we really think it's beyond us to fall into that same trap? to be afraid. We could come together and worship God and we could sing praises to Him. And we can talk about our discipleship to Jesus. We could talk about how important it is to follow Him. And yet in the moment, in the occasion when the world finally challenges us, will we say in one fashion or another, I don't know what you're talking about. What am I going to do with Jesus? question you're going to have to answer. It's a question you're going to have to ask of yourself. And not just this morning. Not just in this assembly. But out there. Out in the world. Facing challenges when people are saying, hey, you are one of them. them, them. You, you have to make the decision. What am I going to do with Jesus on that occasion? Maybe someone says, well, you know what? I don't want to outright deny him. So I'm going to come up with another solution. Acts chapter 24, Paul's been taken captive. And yet as a prisoner, he has opportunities to go before the governor Felix. And Felix had learned a few things about Jesus and his disciples. 
In verse 22 it says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Well, it says, after some days, Felix came, right? Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. In other words, he says, I'm just going to wait for a while. I'm just going to wait. I'm going to make my decision later. What am I going to do with Jesus? I'm going to wait. I'm going to put it off. I'm going to see what happens, and then maybe at some point I'll decide. But you notice, as you go further, when you start talking about that kind of approach, time kind of slips away, doesn't it? Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Brethren, that's a problem because when we take this kind of approach that, well, you know, I'm just going to postpone it. I'm just going to wait. How long are you going to put it off? How long are you going to let it go? I'll wait and I'll wait and I'll wait. And two years later, Felix still never really made any decision about that. Well, I want us to understand that postponing when we know the truth, when we know what we need to do, postponing is another way of essentially saying no to Jesus. We're saying no to Jesus. No, I don't want that. I don't want to do that now. And we've all known people that have done that. I've known people. I've sat down with others and studied and studied and studied. I'm sure Ricky has. It's some of the most frustrating cases. You sit down and you study and you study and you find someone that says, well, I see what I need to do. I understand what I need to do. I understand what Scripture is telling me to do. But you know what? I just don't want to do that right now. I don't want to do it. Then one Sunday morning before services even starts, they say, I'm ready. And you get to start the morning off with a baptism. Those are great Sunday mornings. But brethren, for some, that day never comes. It never comes. I always love the contrast to this because when people decide they really want to follow Jesus, I'm committed, I'm dedicated to doing it. Nothing will stop them. Nothing will stop them. You might even suggest to them, we need to study a little bit longer, and they'll be like, no, I've got to do this now. When you're ready, you'll do it. Putting it off won't even be a question, but you've got to decide. Well, let's turn back. To Acts chapter 8 for our final example. Here's, there's, there's a man. His name is Saul. Eventually he will be known as Paul. And his first answer is, I'm going to persecute him. And in Acts chapter 8 it says, Saul approved of his execution. We're referring to Stephen here. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. Verse 3 says, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And it's interesting enough here, when Jesus appears before Saul later on, he says exactly that, doesn't he? He goes to him and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
You persecute the disciples of Jesus, you're persecuting Jesus himself. And Jesus takes that very personally. But that was Paul's initial answer to this question. I'm going to persecute him. And he thought he was doing right. He did it with a good conscience, but he recognized later that it was the wrong thing to do because he did not recognize Jesus in the beginning for who he really was. And look, I, you know, I realize even today, there are those people who put on billboards and put on those buses, all these things they want you to think about the, the, this mythology that they believe is the story of Jesus. And there very well may be people in that group today who are trying to persecute those beliefs. Who are trying to stop it. But you know what? They might be just like Saul. There are people in those groups who when they finally realize what they are doing, they may change their tune from I will persecute to I will live and I will die for him. You ever known somebody like that? You have to admire Paul's attitude. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In his attitude in Acts chapter 21, where he had just been told he's going to be persecuted when he goes out, he says, I'm still going to go. I'm going to go anyway. And people try to stop him, and he says in Acts 21, 13, he says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready. Not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because once again, once we reach that point of understanding, who Jesus is, then we realize that something much greater is at stake here than just losing things or even losing our lives. Is he worth giving your life for? Paul's answer is absolutely yes. I will live and I will die for him. There's a lot more we could say, but I want to leave you with this. What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to wash your hands? Are you going to betray him? Are you going to spit at him and mock him as the so called Son of God? Are you going to deny him? Or are you going to say, I'm just going to wait? I'm going to put him off. Or will you persecute? You know, the problem with this life is it is far too tenuous to put things off. As much as we may think that we have time on our side, the reality is that time is very fleeting. So I'll leave you with this question. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do? You have to answer it. There's no getting around it. What are you going to do with Jesus? I appreciate your attention this morning. In a moment, we will have a prayer and a song. And we will be able to dismiss to our classes. But let me leave you with one thing. If you are here this morning and right now, you are ready to do something with Jesus.
No one's going to be offended if they're late to class because you want to obey the gospel. No, not a single one of us. We will lift you up. We will pray. And we will help you along your way. Thank you. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.